As Pastor Nick mentioned uh, when we first uh, began this morning, we are joining this morning with churches all across our nation to observe Sanctity of Life Sunday. This is a day intended to celebrate God's gift of life, mourn the many lives that have been lost through the act of abortion, and to commit ourselves to protecting human life at every stage. It was first observed on January 22, 1984, 11 years to the day after the Supreme Court ruled in the Roe v. Wade case that all 50 states must allow abortion on demand. Since that ruling, there have been somewhere around 60 million abortions that have been performed in the United States. That is over one million abortions every year. Over 3,000 abortions every day, 150 every hour, and if we were average it out, one abortion every 27 seconds. Those are some national numbers. What about more localized statistics? Every year in the state of Georgia, there are around 30,000 abortions that take place. That's about 82 children a day. In the world, there are 40 to 50 million abortions performed every single year. That's over 120,000 per day. 5,000 every hour. About 86 per minute. So what we're saying is that if we take all the abortions committed in the world every year, we average them out, then every minute of every day, almost 90 children are lost from this world through the cruelty of abortion. That's 90 smiles we will never see. 90 pairs of little hands we will never hold. Before we go any further, we need to make something plain. In a room this size, statistically speaking, there are women here who have had at least one, maybe multiple abortions, and men who have encouraged or even demanded it. And if you haven't personally had an abortion or encouraged it, you know someone who has. So we're not talking to the people out there. We're talking to ourselves. And I want you to know that I realize a sermon on abortion is hard for you to hear. But my aim this morning is not to just make us all miserable. My hope is to lift our gaze from the despair and destruction our sins have wrought to Jesus Christ. This Jesus who did not come, he said, for the healthy, but for the sick. We are speaking to one another as those who have failed to love God with all of our hearts and those who have failed to love our neighbors as ourselves. 
We all need grace and forgiveness. Every person in this room has fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person in this room has a sin nature and needs to be redeemed by Jesus Christ. So I'm not seeking to depress you. My hope is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you have been forgiven by God, you are forgiven indeed. And if you haven't, if you haven't turned to Jesus Christ in faith, this is an invitation to do so. So as we go along this morning, I pray that the Holy Spirit might pause by your grave and call you to life, that you may follow Jesus Christ in faith and love. And I pray that for all of us, we would leave here this morning with an eager desire to protect, defend life at all stages. And we would have a deeper appreciation for all of life. And so, if you haven't already done so, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 9 through 17. If you're using one of the, the blue Bibles in the seat back in front of you, you can find that on page uh, 1015. And in this passage, <clears throat> um, well, uh, this, the title of this sermon is uh, Honoring All Unborn People, and the, the key words for our worshipers in training are, are will, work, and life. And um, let, me, let me read the text now. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His, that is, God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the, gen- among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now, as I read the text, some of you may have been wondering what it has to do with Sanctity of life and abortion. Well, a lot, actually. This passage speaks very plainly to uh, how we ought to live in society and how we ought to think about our culture and the world we live in. Well, I don't, I don't think it's accurate to say that we've been called to, to try and redeem culture's every nook and cranny. We are called to live as lights in the world. We're not made to simply retreat from society and culture and hide out until Jesus returns. 
Our lives ought to make an impact on the world around us for the glory of God. And this passage helps us to think properly about how and why we do that. And since the sanctity of life is, I think, can be argued one of the most significant issues facing the church today, it's important that we look to a text like this one. We look to these verses to see how we ought to consider Uh, what we should do to work to preserve and defend life at all stages. You see in verses 1 to 8 of 1 Peter 2, Peter describes the dividing effect that the gospel has on people when they hear it. He says that to some, Christ is a stone that causes them to stumble. But to others, the stone serves as a cornerstone upon which God will build his church. And then he turns in verses 9 and following to discuss how they ought to live in light of this reality. That they are living stones being built together as part of God's church. And in these verses, there are three observations. Verses 9 to 17 is all we're going to look at. I want to make three observations And then we'll draw out out a few particular points of application for how we can think about engaging our culture in regard to the preservation of life. And so first in verses 9 to 10, we'll see that we have been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. Second in verses 11 to 15, we'll see that we ought to live honorable lives as exiles in this world. And third, we'll see that we ought to live as free men and women not using our freedom for good. Not, sorry, not for evil, but for good. So first, we have been called out of darkness, verses 9 and 10. In contrast to those in the preceding verses who reject Christ and are offended by Him, Peter says that those who, be, who believe are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. This is a reference to uh, Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. After God delivers Israel out of Egypt, he tells them that they are to be his treasured possession among all peoples, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. This is the great expectation and hope of the Old Testament moving forward and now realized in the New Testament under Christ. And that sounds great, but is it that simple? Or probably a better question is, who is it that belongs to this holy nation? Because God made this promise, we see, to the Jews. And if you look back at Exodus 19 and verse 5, God says, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession. Uh Uh-oh. This presents us with a huge problem. Because God says that one must keep his covenant in order to be his treasured possession. But Israel didn't keep the covenant. And we, as Gentiles, as non-Jews, we certainly haven't either. So what hope is there for us? Well, in short, God never intended Israel to keep the covenant in order that they may have life, may have eternal life. 
God's law was given to them so that they, so that we, might see how utterly short we fall of obeying God's voice and keeping His commands. It points us to Jesus Christ, who kept all of God's law without stumbling in even a single point. And through faith in Him, we are united to Him and made right with God. This is the great truth of the gospel, that God, by His own grace, and not of our doing, has brought us out of darkness into His marvelous light through the work of Christ. And this is true for everyone who has faith in Christ. Peter says in verse 7, the honor is for those of you who believe. Those who have had abortions and those who haven't. Those who have failed as husbands those who have failed as wives, those who have failed as parents, as siblings, as friends, as employers, employees, those of us who have failed as sons, daughters. If you are in Christ this morning, you are a part of God's treasured possession because Jesus Christ has kept the law for you. You are a royal priest. You are part of this holy nation of believers But if you are not in Christ this morning, currently you stand condemned before God. But God's mercy is available to you in Christ. Will you put your trust in Him? Will you believe in the name of the only Son of God who died so that people like you and like me might have life? Whatever baggage you bring with you this morning, Christ can bear it. Whatever sins you have committed in the past, Christ can forgive them. Whatever awful mess you're in right now, Christ can deliver you. The Lord is inviting each and every one of us to trust Him right now. He offers Himself to us. If you have believed on Christ, continue to do so. Continue believing. Continue trusting. If you never have, and I urge you then to do so, Right now, this very moment, you can believe on Christ. You can believe that His life, death, and resurrection in your place is sufficient to make you right with God and to give you peace with Him. Nothing you can do will add an ounce to your standing before God. It's all of grace. And Jesus stands now with open arms ready to receive you. Will you have Him? This is the great reality in which we live. And everything that Peter is about to say in the following verses, he says to those who are part of God's royal family. It's important that we think rightly about the indicatives and the imperatives of Scripture. The indicative here in verse 9, this statement of fact, is that those who have received Christ, they are God's treasured possession. At one time, we were not a people. That is, before Christ, we were cut off from God. We had no hope in the world. We were under judgment, but now we are under mercy. We are a people. We are God's people. And the imperatives in the following verses must be understood in this light. Well, how then should we live? Well, Peter says, We should proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness 
God has not shown us mercy so that we might sit idly by like blind mutes. We have been purchased by Him so that we might make His name great among the nations. We are called to proclaim the greatness of the One who has saved us. This doesn't mean that we all must um, overnight become street evangelists. Or that every moment of every day we are trying to get into arguments and debates with people about theology. No, it, it means that we're ready, eager, and willing to tell other people in our lives what God has done for us. To tell them how great He is. And that we live lives that are in step with the call of the gospel that we've received. And so along these lines, in verses 11 to 15, Peter says, live honorable lives as exiles. Those who are part of this kingdom of priests who have been called out of darkness, we are to combat the darkness on two fronts in these verses. Both by avoiding sinful practices and by conducting our lives in an honorable way in the sight of God. Of others. There's a negative principle here and a positive principle here, or maybe a, a secret principle and a, a public one. In verse 11, he says that we're sojourners and exiles and we should abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against our souls. That's negative. That's what, is, what are you doing in your own heart, in the secret of your own home. In verse 12, he says, keep your conduct honorable as you live among the Gentiles. As you live among unbelievers so that they may glorify God. That's positive. We must live personal holy lives and we must engage in public life if sinners are to see our honorable lives. And so I want to look at each of these in turn. First, negatively. He says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Well, what are passions of the flesh? In short, they're, they're sinful desires. They're the longings of our hearts that go against God's law. The language Peter uses here is very similar to what Paul says in Galatians 5, 16-24. And Peter doesn't describe in particular what he means by passions of the flesh here, but Paul gives uh, some very clear examples of what he calls works of the flesh. In Galatians 5, Paul says that the works of the flesh are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and then he just tags and things like these. He's obviously not trying to give a complete list, but he's providing adequate examples to illustrate the the behavior that flows out of a heart not ruled by God's Spirit. Paul says that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Peter here says that the passions of the flesh wage war against our souls. And so he tells us to abstain from them. We must not partake in the works of evil. There are simply some things that Christians ought not do. Period. 
And so I, I want to ask you, in, in your own heart, are you engaging in secret passions of the flesh that you need to forsake? I pray that you, if you are, I pray that you will. Well, positively then, or publicly, we must live honorable lives in the sight of others. This is more than simply living secret lives of personal holiness where we, we watch wholesome films rather than dirty movies. This is a call for publicly living out the implications of the gospel in our lives through good works in the sight of others. Not so that they might heap praise upon us, but so that they might, as Peter says, glorify God. It's so that when those who are not in Christ see our lives and see how we live, they glorify God at least ultimately on the day of visitation when judgment comes, even if they speak negatively against us now. And they will. We're not called to just live lives of ascetic abstention where we just, just say no and we, we hide out in a bunker. But we must positively conduct ourselves and engage the world around us. Good works in Scripture are not primarily descriptive of what we do in the secret of our hearts, but what we do in the eyes of the watching world. Peter gives an example of what he means here in verse 13. He explicitly encourages the people of God to be subject for Christ's sake to every human institution. Namely, he says, the supreme ruler of the land and anyone he has commissioned to carry out his task. I think this gives us a great insight in how we think about promoting the cause of life. Should we go about as vigilantes burning down abortion mills and seeking to harm those engaged in the awful practice of abortion? Or to think just more broadly about the, the dignity of all human life, think about uh, euthanasia at the other end of the age spectrum. Should we be seeking the harm of these people? No. We are to be subject to our governing authorities, and so we're not to be lawbreakers in our effort to protect life. Now, of course, we are under no obligation to obey laws that directly command us to sin, and we should work to overturn bad laws that promote death, but we need to be careful that we don't promote lawlessness in the fight against death. We must obey God rather than men. When the law of God and the law of men are in conflict, and so cause us or would cause us to sin... We must obey God instead. But even then, we're able to disobey wicked decrees in such a way that promote peace and life rather than chaos and death. Peter tells us in verse 15 that, that God's will for our lives is that our conduct would silence the ignorance of foolish people. We ought to live in such a way that those who reject us and our message have no excuse. As they speak evil against us, they have to do so untruthfully. Ultimately, our lives should serve to shut the mouths of those who speak evil against the Lord and His people. Our lives should be such examples of honorable conduct that those who speak against us must reveal themselves to be the fools that they are. 
commenting on these verses uh, here, John Piper says, over and over in the New Testament, the writers stress that we were created and converted to be engaged relentlessly in a life of public good deeds. We see in Titus 1.14 that Christ died to purify for himself a people zealous for good works. Paul says in Ephesians 2.10 that God saved us and we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Jesus in Matthew 5.16 says that our good works are done in part so that unbelievers will see them and glorify God in heaven. God has not called us merely to abstain from sinful practices of the darkened world around us, but to shine as lights in the world, pushing out the darkness. And this means engaging the world around us in such a way that we are making positive contribution for the glory of God. This looks in part like social justice, caring for the orphan and the widow. We are called both to abstain from sinful passions Engage the dark world around us with the light of the gospel. Well, thirdly, in verses 16 to 17, Peter tells us that we should live as free men, not as evildoers. You see, the free man is a slave to God. The evildoer is a slave to sin. We have been freed from the penalty of the law through faith in Christ. And yet that doesn't lead us to lawlessness. We no longer stand condemned in darkness, laying under the curse of the law, but we have been transferred out of darkness into God's marvelous light. We have been made new. We have been adopted into God's family. And we are called to live as a part of that family. And so we don't have to submit to human institutions any longer out of fear, but as unto the Lord. God has freed us and now sends us as His servants back into those institutions, back into the world to proclaim His glory. And Peter gives us four statements in verse 17 that help us think about how we will live as servants of God. He says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And we're, we're, we'll look at mainly just the first one here in the time that we have left. He says we should honor all people. Righteous people. Evil people. Rich people. Poor people. People that look like us. People that don't. People who love us. People who hate us. People who help us. People who hurt us. Why? Because we are all made in the image of God. We are called to show honor to all people as God's image bearers. And that includes all unborn people. It includes sick people. Physically and mentally challenged people. All people. You see, on the street, you will meet many people that deny that children in the womb are, in fact, children. They like to use terms like fetus and embryo or the cruder examples would include something like it's just an amorphous blob of fetal tissue. 
without getting too technical, fetus and embryo are, are just words used to describe different aspects of a child's development. Fetus is derived from a Latin word, which means child. Embryo from a Greek word meaning the same. And, and it's just that in, in the technologically advancing West, we've used these terms to describe different stages of development in an unborn person. Scripture points very plainly to the personhood of the unborn in several places. And I just want to highlight one. Um, in, in Luke 1, 39-45, Mary, who is pregnant with the Lord Jesus, goes to visit her cousin, Elizabeth, pregnant with John. And Mary speaks to her cousin, And when she did, the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaped for joy. The first person in the world to recognize the Lord Jesus was an unborn baby. And so we have a great obligation to care for them. The light of nature and Scripture make plain that we are to care for the weak and the helpless among us. James 1 says that pure and undefiled religion is to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction. The constant refrain of civic justice throughout the Old Testament centered around how Israel should treat the poor and the outcast the weak and the helpless, the fatherless and the widowed. Two quick examples will suffice. In Deuteronomy 10.18, we see that God Himself executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. In Zechariah 7, 9-10, God's people are commanded, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. We are to show honor to all people, certainly the unborn. Well, let's consider then a few points of application We are not first given the option of having no opinion regarding this issue. The issue of the sanctity of life and the the importance of preserving it. Uh, not, Not just abortion, but any act that dehumanizes someone. Euthanasia, racism are two other examples. Some will tell you that these are political issues and that we can at a minimum, or maybe even should, stay out of them. There is nothing political about the the subjugation and destruction of over 3,000 people every single day. Abortion is an intensely moral issue, an intensely spiritual issue. Abortion, in all its many forms, ends the life of an image-bearer of God. It is premeditated taking of an innocent life. In short, it is murder. 
Murder is but in a heightened form of expression of the heart sins that we saw in Galatians 5. Right? Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, all of these can easily lead to murder if left unchecked. And to top it all off, murder is expressly forbidden in the sixth commandment. Abortion is a work of the flesh. It's rooted in anger and hatred, and we ought to repent for any apathy or indifference we've had in it, had toward it in our own lives or in the lives of others. Well, that's, that's one point of application. We must decide where do we stand. Secondly, we can engage. And there are a couple of ways we can do this. Or there are many ways. I'll, I'll name three. First, we can pray. Would you pray? Would you continue to pray that God would bring an end to this senseless slaughter in our state, in our country, and in the world? Second, we can speak. For example, the Pregnancy Care Center here in Rinkin does great work. Now, not all of us are in a position that we can maybe volunteer there, but maybe some of you are. What can you do to help? Can you volunteer? Can you give? Can you just even point others in their direction when you know someone is struggling with what we might call an unwanted pregnancy? There's the work being done in Savannah at the abortion mills. I think primarily the work is done at the one on Abercorn and 34th. Have you ever gone down there to plead with these mothers and fathers to save the lives of their children? I will be honest. It is no doubt one of the absolute hardest things that I have ever done is to go down there. It is not for the faint of heart. But it is the last line of defense for some of these children. These children who are being brought to the slaughter by their own parents. So, maybe there's work to be done there that you can engage. But ministering there is good, but we also need to think more strategically. Like I said, that's the last line of defense. That's not the first one. What can we do so that more people are hearing of hope and help well before they get there? In most cases, it seems far too late once someone has come that far. Most of that work is hoping for the the other side of it. After the abortion, what can we do? But what about before? As a church, as an individual... What can we do? As a church, are we a safe place where women who have had abortions and men who have uh, encouraged them or people who are, are considering getting one, can they find help, hope, and forgiveness in Christ here in our midst? We must speak firmly about the evils of abortion and, and all sin, but we must also speak of the unsearchable riches and freedom found in the blood of Jesus Christ. A third way we can engage is we can, uh, at least hypothetically, affect change with our voice and our vote. 
We live in a society where we have considerable influence over the laws that rule our land. We must admit that the battle isn't won primarily in the courts, but in our hearts. Our text here in, in 1 Peter says that government should punish evil and promote the good. Currently, the exact opposite is being done with our abortion laws. And so, the goal, the ultimate goal, isn't merely laws on the books that we approve of, but hearts that are changed. But we realize that as hearts are changed and turned toward God and toward our neighbors and toward our children, that should reflect in our laws as well. This is what William Wilberforce and his compatriots understood so well as they fought against the slave trade. Fighting against the slave trade in England during the 18th and 19th centuries, they, they fought at the legal level, but they also fought, fought to inform the minds and the consciences of the public through art and music and preaching. They did this at a cultural level. And all of this happened uh, while Wilberforce and his allies failed time and time again to abolish the slave trade in Parliament for 20 years Wilberforce petitioned Parliament to abolish the slave trade. It took 20 years for that bill to pass, and then another 26 to abolish slavery as a whole. And so this is a call for perseverance, for character, and consistency. Well, lastly, we we can decide, we can engage, and we can... We can listen. I want to close by admitting something to you. I'm, I'm, I'm very thankful for Sanctity of Life Sunday. I think it's wonderful that churches all across our land dedicate an entire Lord's Day to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and to um, confess that all people are created equal as His image bearers and ought to be dignified as such. But I am longing for the day when this is unnecessary. It's unnecessary to remind ourselves that it's wrong for parents to kill their children. As I look out at all of you this morning, I I hate that you have to hear a sermon on abortion. Perhaps our children or our grandchildren or great-grandchildren we'll think of abortion one day as a distant memory. Perhaps our our great-grandchildren will not only see it as illegal, but unthinkable. I realize we live in a fallen world, and we will continue to sin against each other in unimaginable ways until Christ returns. But we can have hope. And beyond what we see in this life... So whether or not our children, grandchildren, or great-grandchildren, or great-great-great-grandchildren ever see a day like that in their lives, we can know for certain there is a day coming when all wrongs will be made right. There's a hymn that you're probably familiar with, but you you might not know what led to its being written. 
On December 1st, 1863, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow received a telegram that his son, Charlie, a soldier in President Lincoln's Union Army, had been severely wounded in battle and likely paralyzed. So he traveled to D.C. to see his son and to hear the medical reports, and in the days that followed, there was much uncertainty about what would become of his, his son, his oldest And this was a very trying time for Henry. He was a 57-year-old widowed father of six children, the oldest of whom now nearly paralyzed as his country fought a war against itself and tore itself apart. Well, on Christmas Day that year, 1863, Longfellow wrote a poem seeking to capture the dissonance in his own heart um, with what he saw in the world around him. He heard the Christmas bells that day, that December day, and he heard the singing of peace on earth from Luke 2. But he observed the world of injustice and violence that seemed to mock the truthfulness of this optimistic outlook in the song. And so as he he wrote his song, the theme of listening reoccurred throughout the poem, eventually leading to a settledness of confident hope even in the midst of bleak despair. And the poem is called Christmas Bells. And I want to read the last two stanzas of the poem for you. He writes, In despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep, God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. That is our hope. The gospel message, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension to the right hand of God from where he will return to judge the living and the dead guarantees us the wrong will fail and the right prevail. We may look around and bow our heads in grief, but we need not despair. Weeping lasts for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And so together, let's honor all people, especially the weak and helpless among us, the outcasts, the unprotected, the unwanted. Let's pray for an end of this genocide and do what we can to stop it while we wait for the day when abortion and racism and hate and violence and all the hurt and sorrow that they cause are things of the past. Let me pray. Father, I admit my own inadequacies. And this is an incredibly hard sermon to preach. But Lord, we ask for your help. Take the truth of your word and plant it deep within our hearts. And help us to fight, to defend the lives of those who are defenseless. And may we see Jesus Christ. And may we live upon His righteousness. 
And may we be empowered by your Spirit. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.